This is not the media. This is hell. The planet is on fire, so yes, this is hell, and those fires do not seem to be slowing in any way. Instead, they are spreading, with firefighters currently fighting 27 major fires in California, with another 1,000 homes under immediate threat. New reports saying that at least 1,000 people, 1,000 human lives have been lost to smoke inhalation alone. And we may not have seen the worst of these fires yet. Yesterday, the Incident Information System of the National Wildlife Coordinating Group reported the Bobcat Fire, which is burning in Los Angeles County, has experienced a rapid rate of spread since it ignited 17 days ago on September 6th. That fire, according to the National Wildlife Coordinating Group, quote, remains very active with active wind-driven spread, upslope and downslope runs, torching and spotting passive and active crowning observed, and all critical thresholds for large fire growth have been exceeded. What's worse is the regular annual fall wildfires historically start in only a few short weeks. Yes, it's definitely going to get worse before it gets well. Let's just hope it gets better, because if it doesn't, then lots of people will be fleeing California. In fact, climate change caused disasters like what is taking place out west right now are happening all over the world, with climate change refugees abandoning their homes in vulnerable, often coastal areas for higher ground. So where will they all go, and what will those escaping climate change find whenever they get to wherever they're going more importantly where are all of us going to be getting our food and water as the planet heats up and the climate that has made the great plains great at feeding the world suddenly shifts farther and farther north we'll discuss our frightening future of climate change and what it means for where we live how we eat and where we get water you know the things necessary for human survival so no big deal when we talk in a few with senior environmental reporter Abram Lustgarten, author of the article, Climate Change Will Force a New American Migration, which is the result of a partnership between ProPublica and the New York Times Sunday Magazine with support from the Pulitzer Center. Abram's work, or Abram's 2015 series examining the causes of water scarcity in the American West, killing the Colorado, was a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting and received the 2016 Keck Futures Initiative Communication Award from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Abram also co-produced the 2016 Discovery Channel film, Killing the Colorado. Follow Abram on Twitter at A-B-R-A-H-M-L. Abram L. And if you have not seen the uh, the show that was on PBS, Killing the Colorado, or read his work from back in 2015, it really was spectacular. And Alex was trying hard to get him on the show at the time. It just didn't work out. So we are very pleased and very honored to have Abram on today's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, producing this, uh, Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show, this afternoon's show. Keep forgetting it's already 2 o'clock. Alex Jerry. Alex, remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what can I say to get you in this cult today? What can I say to get you in this cult today? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new Grand Black This Is Hell Truckers Cap. You can check out the new Grand Black This Is Hell Truckers Cap and all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com, clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. 
So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's Question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Again, Alex will have more of your answers to this week's Question from Hell in right after our guest, What Can I Say to Get You in This Cult Today?, what can I say to get you in this cult today? Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and here in Hangover Country, we are looking for new volunteer board operators for This Is Hell to join our staff here. If you are interested in running the board, as Alex has done nearly every day for several years now, as Richard does, as Theron does, email me at chuck at this is hell.com, chuck at this is hell.com. With Alex's kid getting older and in-person schooling impossible during the pandemic, Alex needs to p- devote more of his time to childcare, all of which means we need new volunteers to run the board and interact with me on air. The, per- the position does come with a very modest stipend, so keep that in mind as well. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from one, two, three, four, even all five days every week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. every morning, usually. Today's at 2 p.m., but this is the first time we've done it this way. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it weekly or a couple times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, contact us. Chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you kind of need to live in the Chicago area. However, we will also be seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely. Stuff that can be done no matter if you live in London or Laos. You can be part of the This Is Hell crew wherever you live. So stay tuned in for more details on that those contributions that you can make to This Is Hell as well. Uh, can I just jump in here real sure. quick? Uh, you don't need to know how to do anything. Yeah. Uh, you just need to be reliable and show up. And I can teach you everything you need to do. So uh, no need to be worried about not having experience broadcast stuff. It's uh, pretty easy. I can figure it out. And it was really nice of uh, one of the people who contacted us to send a resume. But we don't need a resume because you're nothing that you, nothing is really going to help you in your experience in being able to do this. This is just something that's completely different from likely what you have done in the past. And it is very easy to do. Even if you've run a radio board before, this is different and this is easier. So keep that in mind, as Alex was saying. Juice got back in touch with us about being a board operator. You may remember Juice contacted us last week and told us he is interested, but he lives down in Champaign, Illinois. Juice also told us he is a former Division I college basketball player, and I'm starting to narrow down my search on which one he was. Juice got back in touch with us writing, uh, Guten Morgen, Chuck. Unaware that Juice was fluent in German. I heard last Monday's show on SoundCloud that was amazing when you read my email on the air. I was not expecting that you would read my email on air, but I I maybe should have. I'm open to a wide range of possibilities when it comes to helping you in your show, whether that be commuting, moving, or contributing what I can from the confines of Shambana. While I do have a few stories, topics from my short life that I think are worthy of sharing with you personally, my intention is to be a sponge as I formulate the unorthodox method of weaving them together in a fabric that can be felt by the non-bookish masses. My life's ambition is not to become some influencer that perpetually generates content for clicks and capitalism's sake, but if I must, I will take on a role for a finite span of time and service to help heal, unify, and restore power back to the weary masses as stuff will surely get crazier before it begins to get better. 
But anyways, two questions. One, if Chuck is legally blind, does he read these emails himself? If so, I apologize for not being more concise. Two, are y'all interested in meeting sometime, discussing the switchboard gig, and just getting acclimated in general? If it agrees with your schedules, I am able to come up to the city a couple days of the upcoming week, or if another day in the future works better, just tell me. Let me know what you think about it all. Cheers, Juice. Yes, Juice, I do read these emails myself after copying and pasting them into a document so they're in large print. And Alex or I will be getting back in touch with you and everybody who has contacted us soon because uh, we are going to start scheduling people to be coming in here and being trained by Alex and also to be informing you about other ways in which you can contribute to This Is Hell because I really want this to be more and more listener-supported, just like having the listeners be part of our crew, having them be the people who make the suggestions for our guests, and then having them actually on our staff... just being completely listener supported that's what we want to do here at this is hell and another listener is interested as well as being a new board operator a listener doesn't live in champaign illinois which is a huge plus james writes chuck i wish this opportunity had come up before i decided to move back to milwaukee (laughs) however i'm here in chicago for another six weeks and after that would be willing to commute once a week or possibly more if it works out i love this is hell and i would love to take part in any way possible running the board or the remote opportunity you've been alluding to i have dabbled in audio engineering in the past which is a plus mostly recording bands but i think i can learn quickly you can definitely learn quickly everybody can learn quickly please let me know how to apply thanks for your time james well james it sounds like you just applied. And as we are looking uh, for help on work that can be done remotely as well, we will be speaking with both you and Juice very soon. If you are in the Chicago area and interested in being a board operator here on This Is Hell or not in the Chicago area but would still like to contribute to the show, email me at chuck at com. Just like Andy did, Andy contacted us about the volunteer board operator position as well, which again does come with a very modest stipend. Andy writes, hey, Chuck and Alex, I was just curious about the details of the board operator position you were talking about. Maybe not for me, but my friend Danny, who might be moving soon. I think you may even know him. Andy, oddly, I know a lot of people named Danny. In fact, I have a brother by a different mother named Danny. So I asked Danny, or Andy, which Danny it is, and I'm still awaiting Andy's response. Once once we find out, I will tell you which Danny it is. Andy adds, I also seem to recall you had some kind of busy work with cataloging old shows or something like that. Andy included his answer to this week's question from hell, which is, what can you say to get me into this cult today? And Alex will be reading Andy's answer later on today's show. But yes, Andy, we are looking for volunteers who can work remotely to work on our archives and a new website, which we hope will have a searchable database with access to all of our interviews, all of our shows ever, dating back to 1996 with free and easy access for everybody. But in doing that, we're going to probably have higher costs when it comes to downloads. So We'll be asking more and more people to sign up to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash thisishell. Again, if you are interested in joining us as a member of the This Is Hell crew, whether remotely or in person, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up on This Is Hell, like I said, the planet's on fire, so where do those fleeing the effects of climate change go? 
and more of your answers to this week's question mail, which is, again, what can I say to get you in this cult today? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. The world is already experiencing migration forced upon them by climate change. They are fleeing the most vulnerable parts of the planet, and more often than not, those fleeing such areas are often the most marginalized and the poor. So where do those escaping climate change go? And when we do flee for higher ground, what will we eat when we get there? Will there be food and water, the necessities of life? Here to help us better understand what our future very well may be, senior environmental reporter Abram Luskarton is the author of the article, Climate change will force a new American migration, which is the result of a partnership between ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine with support from the Pulitzer Center. Welcome to This Is Hell, Abram. Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's great having you on the show. And before we continue, I even start, uh, I just got to say that your work and uh, the writing of Killing the Colorado was just spectacular. And then the following uh, 2016 Discovery Channel film that you co-produced was really great. And if anybody out there has not read that article or seen that show, you definitely have to watch because it is an amazing article about policymaking, about the way that we think about the environment about how the whole western side of the west of the Mississippi works. So it's just fantastic work, and I just wanted to make sure I told you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. You write that over two weeks in August, 900 blazes incinerated six times as much land as all the state's 2019 wildfires combined. This is in California, forcing 100,000 people from their homes. Three of the largest fires in history burned simultaneously in a ring around the San Francisco Bay Area. Another fire burned just 12 miles from your home in Marin County. You watched as towering plumes of smoke billowed from distant hills in all directions and air tankers crisscrossed the skies. Like many Californians, you spent those weeks worrying about what might happen next, wondering how long it would be before an inferno of 60-foot flames swept up the steep grassy hillside on its way toward my own home, rehearsing in my mind what my family would do to escape. So speaking of what happens next, CNN yesterday quoted a 38-year-old Oakland resident explaining why he was considering leaving California. He said, it's not necessarily this year of wildfires so much as the dam breaking on the realization that this is not just the new normal, but just a prelude to what's coming and just being sort of tired of this being normal. And then he says that he is going to go to New York to flee California and all the environmental issues he has there. How good of choices are people making? How good are the choices that people are making when it comes to decisions on where to go in response to climate change? Is going to New York City or New York State a good place for Californians to go to avoid the environmental problems that they've been facing over the last few years? Well, it depends on on where in New York he wants to go. Uh, New York City is going to survive long into the future, uh, but it's going to have its own climate problems to contend with, sea level rise uh, being chief among them. So, you know, to the extent that New York is an example of how a city will invest in a seawall to hold the the sea back, uh, New York will be fine. Uh, He'll at least uh, escape the wildfires. You know, as a part of this project, when we tried to analyze uh, really the best and the newest climate data 
that was out there to look at all sorts of, of threats and to map them across the country. So, you know, um, the wildfires feel the most uh, imminent, uh, you know, and, and current for us here in California, where I am. But, um, you know, the South faces heat waves and the Southeast faces sea level rise and the Midwest faces decline in crop yields and uh, and the, the Southwest faces, you know, water shortages. And when you look at all of those together, you start to get a sense uh, of, uh, you know, the walls closing in, um, not a lot of places left to go, at least places that will be unaffected. So, you know, I think um, this movement that I anticipate of population is going to happen slowly. It's probably just beginning. There's going to be some trial and error, uh, but it's going to be a lot of personal decision making about which, uh, which kind of risks people are most comfortable living with. You said New York City was is going to survive. There are those who are more skeptical and don't think that New York City is going to survive. How does it survive? The way that you were describing it as a walled-off area, will these major metropolitan areas that are impossible to abandon because of whatever uh, financial dependency or economic dependency we have on them, will they look like islands? It's really hard to know, but uh, I mean, one of the the greatest indicators for ability to you know to withstand uh, the change climate changes that are coming is you know the strength of your economy and how much money uh, you know local governments or municipalities cities have to invest in you know in building resilience in helping people to adapt to it. And so you know, part of my story focuses on the places that won't have those resources and what happens to small towns or you know places along the coast of uh, Georgia or North Carolina or, you know, so forth that won't have a tax base to invest in really huge, expensive infrastructure. Um, but cities like New York or for that matter, you know, Shanghai, another major global city that's threatened by sea level rise, um, you know, no place has more capital uh, and more economically at stake than uh, than than those cities, uh, San Francisco being another one. So, you know, the likelihood that they'll be able to invest in innovation and find some solution is much, much greater. And, um, you know, the stakes of retreating from a place like that are so much uh, of so much greater consequence that, you know, I, I, most of the experts I talk to think that there, you know, there will be a solution. Um, the you know the drawings the architectural sort of renderings that i see of 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 the new york area you know might mean uh, a seawall that's erected across the opening to uh you know to the bay so uh i mean new york's already an island and uh or manhattan is anyway uh but uh but basically you know keeping the higher sea you know seas out at the ocean and not allowing them to come into um you know the new york harbor and uh and the hudson river and the, and the surrounding waterways at all so where will we get the resources to build that kind of infrastructure? We're being told right now that, you know, people uh, blame uh, President Trump for making the deficit as high as it is right now. So where are we going to be getting these resources to do these huge projects if at the same time other areas of the country are being inundated with climate change? So inevitably, um, you know, adapting is going to be expensive. And one of the, you know, the issues that comes up in my reporting is the need to plan for that uh, and the need for cities and, and governments of all sorts and sizes to prepare. Uh, and, and that's difficult because, you know, as you're getting at, you know, infrastructure development is behind already in this country. So, so going from a position of being behind and finding the resources to get ahead of the curve is going to be immensely challenging. Um, but the consensus in my reporting is that that's really the only uh, option. I mean, the alternative to that is a real sort of devolution of, um, you know, of organized and stable society. So, 
So it's probably going to happen, uh, you know, and in all likelihood, the money's going to come through uh, through taxes of various sorts. I mean, it, it's going to be expensive and um, people are going to have to pay for it one way or another. And they'll do that through taxes on their food, on their property, on their you know purchases uh, and and perhaps through, you know, other government investments as well. You point out that obviously climate change refugees are often the most poor, the most marginalized. What happens when climate change and extreme poverty mix? Does migration caused by climate change mean poverty moving to where it does not exist now? Does it mean that the world will soon be confronted by global poverty in a way that it has not in the past and may, in fact, address it because we'll be so confronted with it? Uh, yes, is <laughs> the short answer to, to all of those questions. I mean, my, my work began uh, with a more global view. This story about the United States is the second in a series, and the first in that series looked at uh, migration in response to climate change globally. And, you know, the fact is that the places on the planet, uh, the hottest places close to the equator in North Africa, in Central America, in South Asia, um, that will witness the most destructive and the swiftest uh, and most severe degrees of climate change are also the poorest parts of the planet. And so, you know, as a general rule, uh, it's going to be increasingly difficult for those regions affecting many hundreds of millions of people to produce enough food and already impoverished regions are going to get poorer and more likely, uh, you know, to move and to migrate. And so that's sort of the genesis for, you know, for this body of reporting. Um, while the the, you know, the dynamic in the United States is going to be a little less extreme than, say, you know, Africans moving out of the, the North Sahel. Uh, it's the, the essential, you know, dynamic is, is more or less the same. Climate will affect the most, most vulnerable parts of the population first. Um, climate has made the, the most vulnerable and impoverished uh, and, and often minority segments of American population more vulnerable as it is, and it makes the solutions less available to them uh, going forward. So, you know, there, the risk is that you'll see deepening poverty uh, come in several ways. One is, you know, as as migrants move to cities, um, rapid urbanization is expected. And if those cities can't accommodate an influx of people and support them in terms of jobs and housing and uh, basic infrastructure and, and other things that lead to a high quality of life, then you know, poverty in those cities will uh, will deepen, uh, and its stress on social structure will will deepen as well. Uh, the other side of the equation is, you know, the places that get left behind is, you know, it takes some wealth to have mobility to move, uh, and uh, the communities that have the least wealth will be the least likely to evolve in the face of climate change. And so you'll see trapped communities and trapped populations that have an ever diminishing tax base, uh, uh, ever diminishing job market, uh, steadily lowering incomes and economic prosperity. Um, and will they are already behind and will fall further and further behind. But that's not necessarily the case for, as you point out, for what might, people might call abandoned cities due to a lack of manufacturing, like my hometown of Detroit, places that have are up north or farther north, I should say, and have empty spaces than them. How can those types of abandoned cities from manufacturing leave, uh, leaving, how can those benefit from this process and this migration? Yeah, so this is hypothetical, but you know, when you look at the at the maps and the data uh, that we created, looking at climate risks, one of the things they make very clear is that you know, 
the uh, northern and Great Lakes and northeastern parts of the country are spared uh, many of the climate-related you know, risks, at least the ones that, that we looked at. And when you pair that with the experts' um, you know, prognostication that, that we'll see a rapid urbanization, then you look at cities like Detroit um, that have, uh, because of, of you know, the fallout uh, in, you know, in Detroit's economy and, and places like it you know, over the last couple of decades, have excess capacity now. So, you know, the the opportunity there is for people to be able to move in and to to build out and and use again, um, you know, the kind of whether it's water infrastructure or or housing stock, uh, you know, or or uh, whatever it is to allow them to take advantage of what will in the future be a more moderate environmental um, conditions and uh, you know and and basically find you know space to to grow into. Whereas other cities are already overcrowded and will have a more difficult time absorbing you know large numbers of new people. We are talking about the resources it'll take to address infrastructure, and you write the cost of resisting the new climate reality is mounting. Florida officials have already acknowledged that defending some roadways against the sea will be unaffordable. And the nation's federal flood insurance program is for the first time requiring that some of its payouts be used to retreat from climate threats across the country. It will soon prove too expensive to maintain the status quo. Will we move? Will we finally end our climate? When we move, I should say, will we finally end our climate change denialism? Because we will, it'll simply be too expensive to continue to live in denial. Well, it's not clear to me which of those things comes first. Uh, you know, the the kinds of uh, government programs you were just mentioning, and that I mentioned in my story. I mean, they they're they're part of a system that's encouraged Americans up until now to uh, uh, to live in some of the most dangerous places in terms of environmental change and climate change. So, you know, we have a system of subsidies uh, that encourage us to uh, move to, say, the Southwest, where water is cheap because the federal government built the canals that pipe the water to cities like Phoenix. Uh, we have, you know, readily available and very affordable subsidized insurance that makes it possible to still move to the coast of Florida and build a new home, even though everyone knows that, um, you know, sea level rise is going to, you know, make that an increasingly dangerous place to live. And so what we're seeing now is a bit of an economic shift where the costs of all of those subsidies and all of those systems that have made it possible for Americans to essentially make, you know, dangerous decisions um, are becoming so great that the decision calculus has to change. And that's what you see when you see, you know, Florida determining that it's simply not going to be able to rebuild the road out to the Florida Keys again and again, or uh, the National Flood Insurance Program deciding that it's not going to rebuild houses in the same flood that have flooded six times over in exactly the same space that instead, you know, if if a subscriber wants to get their payout, they're going to have to move into a safer place outside of the floodplain. So that's the way that sort of calculus of decisions, uh, you know, is going to be shifting. And what that basically means is that, you know, Americans will be forced to evaluate their circumstances and where they choose to live more on, you know, the raw merits of, uh, you know, of the danger or, or risk in those places. And and, uh, you know, I do think there will be places where without um, subsidized safety nets, uh, people will increasingly decide that it's not safe to be there, financially safe to be there, and and will increasingly move. Um, but I think that economic change will spur the movement rather than uh, the movement spurring the economic change. We are already facing a crisis of inequality, and you argue climate change will increase that inequality. Why does climate change increase inequality? How much worse will climate change make inequality? 
Well, it's, uh, you know, it's like I said, it's um, uh, the least uh, able to afford the change will suffer uh, the greatest by, you know, the change that's coming. And we also see that, you know, climate change will exacerbate, um, you know, systemic problems that we already have uh, that lead to inequality. Uh, for example, you know, um, the racist practice of, of redlining, redlining neighborhoods against, uh, you know, mortgage loans that, uh, you know, has gotten so much attention. Um, you know, in, in decades past, what we see now is that, you know, those same neighborhoods that were discriminated against uh, in terms of, of bank loans also received the least investment in the kind of infrastructure that we need to be resilient in the face of climate change. So, um, you know, a study came out just a couple months ago looking at revised flood risk across the country, and it found that flood risk was uh, extraordinarily greater than previously estimated. Um, but it also found that most of the places where that risk had been underestimated were, um, were poor minority and, and uh, previously redlined communities. And they hadn't received investments in like flood drainage canals and so forth. And so when you look at, uh, you know, how climate change is going to impact communities, uh, it might get equally hot or there might be equally, you know, additional amounts of rain in a wealthy community and a poorer community. But the wealthy community is going to have the tools and the resources to deal with that change. And the poorer community uh, is most likely to be, uh, you know, to, to be flooded uh, or, or not have those resources to change. You were comparing this blue lining, which is uh, uh, related to insurance, to the red lining of the past. Uh, I don't know if this is the right way to word this, but to what degree can white privilege uh, save white people from the worst effects of climate change? You know, I think that's a that's a hot topic of conversation at the moment. Um, you know, I think the answer, you know, is to be determined. Um, but uh, people of privilege have a running start for sure, uh, financially and, you know, and in all the other structural ways that we're talking about, you know, in this country right now. And, um, you know, those benefits will prove meaningful in terms of adapting to climate change, just as they prove meaningful in, uh, you know, um, getting an education in college or, or entering the job markets and, you know, and so forth. And so, you know, part of what a lot of the people that I'm speaking with in the course of my research are suggesting is that, um, you know, this idea of resilience, you know, that maintaining the status quo isn't quite good enough that, uh, you know, from a policymaking perspective, that solutions need to start to consider, um, you know, who actually benefits and and how, you know, benefit from solutions, uh, you know, is proportionally allocated across society and that that might have to shift now as well. You also write that nor will these disruptions wait for the worst, I'm sorry, the worst uh, environmental changes to occur. The wave begins when individual perception of risk starts to shift, when the environmental threat reaches past the least fortunate and rattles the physical and financial security of broader, wealthier parts of the population. It begins when even places like California's suburbs are no longer safe. It has already begun. Do we have to wait for crises to affect the more well-off before we do anything about whatever the challenge is? And if so, what does that say to you about the U.S. when nothing is done until the relatively rich are affected? Yeah, I mean, I you know, uh, unfortunately, the you know the past has has taught us that we do tend to wait for crisis before responding in any way. Uh, this you know climate change in general is uh it, there's never been a better case for um 
you know, making advanced decisions and trying to prepare for what's to come and trying to head off uh, what what's going to come. Um, it's a weak spot for sure uh, in American culture and American planning. We've had a difficult time uh, collectively addressing uh, the threat of climate change and changing our collective behavior, changing our emissions levels, changing our, our level of planning. Um, uh, we do default to uh, response in, in a period of crisis, but that's not going to work for that much longer, I don't think. Do we know to what extent wildfire seasons like these that are being experienced right now in California are California's future? To what degree is this exactly what they'll be seeing in the future? Will it get worse? Do, do we have any real grasp of what it will be? Well, to paraphrase a quote that I just saw yesterday um, in another piece of media that I was reading, I mean, you could look at uh, you could look at what's happened this year in California as the worst uh, yet, or you could look at it as uh, you know the best it's going to be uh, from here on out. Uh, and you know, I think that gives you a sense of what the science says is is coming. Um, I based my reporting off you know one piece of recent research uh, that had found that uh, severe fire weather in California was twice as likely now as it was in 1980 and will be 20% again, more likely um, just in the next 12 to 15 years. Uh, so, you know, the suggestion, and that's on average across the state and some places are, are obviously more vulnerable than others. So, you know, the implication is that, um, you know, this is going to be a regular season that California contends with and, uh, and you either, you know, can choose to live in it, um, but you can't expect that, that, you know, that this is an anomaly, uh, that there are bad years and good years. They're all going to be, you know, sort of bad years from a fire perspective from here on out. We are speaking with senior environmental reporter Abram Lustgarden. He wrote the article, Climate Change Will Force a New American Migration, which is the result of a partnership between ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine with support from the Pulitzer Center. So let's talk about where you live and let's talk about where I live for a second. Uh, in the accompanying article and in interactive map, new climate maps show a transformed United States. You write, heat alone, however, won't determine Americans' fate. A new climate analysis presented for the first time here projects how humidity and heat will collide to form wet bulb temperatures that will disrupt the norms of daily existence. Today, the combination of truly dangerous heat and humidity is rare, but by 2050, parts of the Midwest and Louisiana could see conditions that make it difficult for the human body to cool itself for nearly one out of every 20 days in the year. So is our future not only quarantining from pandemics, but staying at home to avoid weather that is difficult to live in? Is our future a future of staying home to protect us from even more dangers, pandemics and climate change? Is our future quarantining? Yeah, I'm sorry to say, uh, but that's what the, you know, the scientists that I'm speaking with and the data that they're giving me to analyze um, suggests. Uh, and that's certainly, you know, my personal experience uh, here with with the fire season. You know, we had a month of, of air that had us with our windows shut and, um, you know, kids stuck inside and, and not able to uh, to go outside and uh, do, you know, live our normal lives. Um, so, that's not a fun experience, but, uh, it, uh, you know, I do think that we're all going to be increasingly encountering, you know, severe conditions that require that, uh, more and more frequently. So you've experienced both. What's worse having to deal with the prospects of your home being destroyed by climate change, by wildfires, or having to deal with the fact that there is a deadly pandemic looming about? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. You know, I don't have an answer to that. Um, 
it's a pretty pretty subjective one, uh, except that I'd point out that these things are not unrelated. Um, you know, we will see a rise in uh, pandemics with climate change as well. And uh, while the science doesn't say that climate change caused, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, there are clear links between the changes that are coming with climate change and the evolution of, of coronaviruses uh, in general. Um, so these are going to be more more common, more frequent, not just coronaviruses, but other sorts of infectious disease. Uh, they're going to spread further, faster, and more frequently in a warming world. And you point out that in recent years, summer has brought a season of fear to California, with ever worsening wildfire, wildfires closing in, but this year felt different. The hopelessness of the pattern was now clear, and the pandemic had already uprooted so many Americans. Relocation no longer seemed like such a distant prospect, like the subjects of my reporting climate change had found me. Its indiscriminate forces erasing all semblance of normalcy. Suddenly, I had to ask myself the very question I'd been asking others. Was it time to move? Will climate change find all of us. I'm here in Chicago and there's a sense that we're safe from sea level rise. We're not on the coasts. Uh, we're on Lake Michigan, but we're not on any of the ocean sh- uh, shorelines. When climate change finds us, what will it look like? Will it be like California wildfires or something else? Um, well, <laughs> it's it's hard to say. I mean, some places will experience subtler effects than others, but uh, I can't imagine too many places on the planet that won't experience uh, some sort of change and transformation, uh, you know, for better or worse. You might have noticed there on the shores of Lake Michigan that the water levels have been rising uh, far faster than sea level rise, uh, for that matter. So I think, you know, Lake Michigan levels have risen almost three feet in the last couple of years, and that's connected to, you know, a, a dramatic increase in precipitation uh, across the Midwest and, you know, the drainages that drain into the Great Lakes. And that's, um, you know, an effect of climate change that's leading to, you know, more erosion uh, and, you know, the erase, the erasure of some properties along those shorelines. So um, maybe that's not a devastating change, but it's a it's a palpable change, uh, you know, and you're also seeing it in, you know, longer heat waves and longer, um, you know, winter storms and, you know, deeper cold spells and, um, you know, greater extremes uh, across the board. And that, you know, that'll be common um, in northern and northeastern parts of the country. So you write that, meanwhile, the northern Midwest and Great Plains will benefit in farm productivity, in economy, and in overall comfort. So how much can I count on the value of my Chicago home to increase due to climate change? Should those in the northern Midwest and Great Great Plains be thinking, hey, we're going to cash in on climate change? I've talked to plenty of experts who think uh, that that's the case, you know, and we've read in the New York Times, you know, the Duluth, Minnesota might be a destination for for climate migrants, as might uh, Buffalo, New York. Uh, and I've gotten, you know, emails and feedback, uh, you know, for from my stories uh, from people, you know, living um, in, in Minnesota and Wisconsin, who, you know, who have described, uh, you know, a rise in their property values. Um, you know, I think the trick is, uh, if you're going to play that game is, you know, how, how fast does that change come? Do you want to invest in, in a piece of land, you know, thinking that in 50 years that value is going to go up or in 30 years? Or are you expecting that, you know, overnight? Do you think that can lead to climate change denialism, the idea that things might get actually better for where you are, where you live? 
Well, I, there doesn't seem to be much of a challenge uh, amongst the population to find reasons to deny, uh, you know, climate change or to, uh, you know, not grasp the the breadth of its consequences. So, um, so I think that anything could convince, you know, certain people, uh, you know, to think that this isn't such a big deal, um, you know. But certainly. Uh, uh, you know, the world's a big place. Um, there's going to be places that, uh, you know, are not um, devastated by climate change for a very, very long time into the future uh, and may benefit first. And, um, you know, to the people in those places will for a long time uh, find themselves in a more fortunate situation. And I want to talk about what might cause that climate change nihilism a little bit more. You write, Americans have been conditioned not to respond to geographical climate threats as people in the rest of the world do. It is natural that rural Guatemalans or subsistence farmers in Kenya facing drought or scorching heat would seek out someplace more stable and resilient. Even a subtle environmental change, a dry well, say, can mean life or death. And without money to address the problem, migration is often simply a question of survival. By comparison, Americans are richer often much richer and more insulated from the shocks of climate change. Does our wealth make us more vulnerable to climate change because we do feel insulated? Yes, uh, and we are insulated. I mean, imagine, so it's it comes back to the policies and the subsidies and the availability of insurance and things like that, that I, you know, that I was talking about before. But imagine, you know, if, um, you know, if the people in Phoenix, Arizona were uh, left to, uh, find water that existed in that environment naturally. If the federal government, you know, didn't spend billions of dollars to, you know, to build a canal and a pump system and power plants to take that water hundreds of miles from the Colorado River and bring it to Phoenix, um, you know, or imagine what Florida would look like today if, uh, you know, after Hurricane Andrew in 1992 and all of the big national insurance companies either went bankrupt or left that state, if you couldn't buy policies for property on on the Florida coastline. Um, that didn't happen. Subsidize those policies. And as a, re- as a result, 5 million more people have moved to the coastline of Florida and, and continued to build there. So, um, you know, we, it's a direct result of these policies that we, you know, as a, as a uh, sort of as a national population, you know, have moved in, in the wrong direction and, you know, left to sort of, you know, um, you know, more natural conditions, uh, we might find ourselves as people in Guatemala do, uh, reacting, you know, a little bit more, not more logically, um, you know, to, to changing environmental conditions. Are those who are not acting logically, as you call it, uh, those who are are going towards danger instead of fleeing from it, those who are going, moving to places like Phoenix and Florida, do they all have to be climate change deniers to make that kind of move? Are are there those who believe in the science of climate change and understand and accept the mounting threats, but who still are taking actions that would seem to be in denial of climate change, like moving to Phoenix? Do you have to be a climate change denier to move to Vegas or Phoenix? Absolutely not. Uh, And just to be clear, like I I do not in any way mean to label, uh, you know, people who have moved uh, against the logic, which includes myself uh, many times as as climate deniers. I think those are two, you know, totally different things. So, you know, to me, a climate denier is somebody who looks at the at the science, the consensus of scientific opinion on its face and 
uh, decides that they don't trust that consensus. Um, sociologically, where we all choose to move and you know our personal behavior, it's it's a different, more more difficult thing. Um, you know, we all follow uh, a lot of more subjective impulses that range from you know heritage to family to um, you know to marriages uh, to you know personal preferences for place. Um, those are subtle things, and uh, that's where policies you know tweak decision making. Um, you know, and, and the, the, the realization of the effects of, of climate change is, uh, is a slow and transformative thing. It'll continue to happen slowly, you know, into the future. And, um, you know, it's only recently begun to affect large, uh, groups of the population, uh, as it is. So, you know, it's not a big surprise to me that, you know, that, um, subtle tweaks in policy have, have made certain places seem more attractive to people, uh, than, than they might have otherwise seemed. And I don't think that makes somebody a climate denier. But I did just recently read a, uh, a survey of, of people uh, in at-risk places like the Florida coast, uh, and something like half of them uh, responded that they knew and were concerned about the environmental or climate risk of, um, you know, of the place they were choosing to move to at the time that they moved and bought their house. And so, you know, you have to take a step back and um, you know, ask what it is that, uh, you know, that pushes people to make that decision anyway. In some cases, that'll be a personal decision. In some cases, it's going to be a policy or an economic decision. And you also point out that it's only a matter of time before homeowners begin to recognize the unsustainability of this approach, a market shock when driven by this sort of cultural awakening uh, that risks uh, all of our uh, home values can strike a neighborhood like an infectious disease with fear spreading doubt and devaluation from door to door. It happened that way in the foreclosure crisis relative to what happened in 2008. How much worse will the impact of climate change be on real estate values for those whose generational wealth is mostly tied up in their homes? How much worse will climate change be than 2008? It's so hard. It's so hard to say. You know, there's researchers and I talk to them, you know, who are looking at this question now. They're just beginning to study, you know, these issues. Um, So there's a couple studies out, uh, one which I mentioned in my story that, uh, you know, suggests that, uh, for example, small local banks are are making loans in places in areas that they see as climate risk uh, areas uh, only if they can pass those loans on to the federal government and that they don't want to take on that risk if, if they can't pass those loans along. So, you know, those are the early signs of, of a real estate bubble and, and suggest that, um, you know, there's trouble ahead. If uh, places in California, for example, uh, or, you know, along the Gulf Coast can't buy property insurance going forward, even though that might be a wise development in the context of, you know, climate change, uh, it'll have devastating, uh, you know, economic impacts in the short term. And so I think there's going to be a lot of sort of needle threading and compromise and, um, you know, and, and uh, sl- smaller adjustments to, you know, to policy and circumstances, you know, over the next couple of decades to try to lessen those impacts. But, you know, if you want to look out 50 years from now, um, you know, my sense from from all that I'm reading is that the way that property and homes are valued today will be dramatically different uh, than when that will peak in specific places, uh, you know, and how fast that crash might come. I, who knows? You talk about looking out your kitchen window and saying that you saw what was precisely the kind of wild land urban interface that all the studies I read blamed for heightening Californians exposure to climate risks, wildland urban interface that all the studies I had blamed for heightening Californians' exposure to climate risks. 
How much is the problem with wildfires fueled by building, by developing in areas that were in the past not residential? Is the problem the fuel for the fire development in the woods, if you will? Yeah, it's it's all of those things, you know, and I, you know, I don't know precisely how, you know, the proportion of those influences breaks down. My general understanding is that um, <clears throat> forest management that you're hearing so much about, you know, plays a role, but a relatively small role. Um, development plays a role, um, but uh, not to call it a small role, but but less significant than climate change. But the big the big changing factor is, uh, you know, is the way that the climate is changing. It's hotter. The winds are driving harder. Uh, the the you know moisture levels are lower, and droughts are more severe. And so those are exacerbating these other <clears throat> effects. But for sure, California's population has grown enormously, and um, and it has in many places um, sprawled. And that development has pushed into places, uh, you know, that are what we call wildland interfaces. So the edges of hillsides and mountains, um, because people are attracted to those places and they're beautiful, uh, or land is cheaper, or, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but it's those, um, you know, those borderline communities that are most vulnerable to fires. And then the climate is making those fires more frequent and more destructive. We only have a few minutes left, but I want to ask you a couple questions about agriculture. You write uh, the as you <clears throat> you write about how the agricultural system will be under threat, and, but the current current U.S. agricultural system it overproduces food. There's plenty of food waste. So, to what extent will the food supply be under threat? Will will the issue still be distribution rather than the quantity produced? An enormously complex. Uh, problem and uh, system uh, with, you know, with no uh, easy answers. So, I, you know, the suggestion is not that Americans will starve or we will run out of food. Um, and it's not just because we overproduce food or we waste a lot of it. It's, uh, you know, that the crops that I looked at, um, you know, corn and soybeans, for example, they're, they're industrial crops and they're, you know, they're the staple ingredients for a lot of processed foods. And they're also, you know, the basis for enormous uh, U.S. exports. So, you know, the U.S. agriculture industry is huge and sends food around the world and um, you know it has uh, huge revenues as a result of that and so when you look at you know decreasing yields um, before you see Americans running short of food for example you're likely to see you know a pullback in those foreign exports uh, you know in an economic decline uh, perhaps you know in in the benefits of, of those exports and maybe a decline in the influence that the United States has elsewhere um, because providing food is um, you know a great uh, form of influence for foreign countries um, there's lots of things that will change before we run out of food uh, but the you know the the climate and landscape changes suggest that uh, you know, food growing might need to become less industrialized, uh, uh, more diverse and more spread across the country. Um, and certainly, you know, better uh, distribution of that food would, would always help. It would help now. It'll help in the future. But the phrase has always been with the Great Plains that um, that's where America feeds the world. So what does that lessening of crop yields mean for global hunger? The saying is, you know, the U.S. feeds the world. So what happens to the world when the U.S. can no longer feed the world? Yeah. So, uh, again, you know, no clear answers, but there was a recent study uh, a couple months ago out of Columbia University that suggested that, you know, a repeat of the Dust Bowl uh, in the U.S. High Plains, which, uh, you know, most scientists consider, you know, pretty likely to happen at some point, um, could lead to like a 30 percent decline in food availability in places like, um, you know, Ethiopia, which receives a lot of, uh, you know, exports of, of uh, U.S. corn. 
Um, so, uh, so it would have a direct impact. I mean, again, there's, there's a lot of food produced in the world, maybe not enough for future, you know, population growth, but, um, there's enough to, you know, in theory kind of move supply lines around and, you know, and, and get food to people who need it if, uh, if that could be done. Um, but, but the world typically, you know, fails to do that efficiently. So, you know, disrupting the U S supply into that, you know, global food supply chain would have a really, you know, negative effect for a whole lot of people. You write that in an era of climate change, though, such policies amount to a sort of a shell game meant to keep growth going, economic growth going, even when when other obvious signs in scientific research suggest that it should stop. Does economic growth as a model, must it end to fight climate change or even adapt to it? Um, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer that question, but I think, you know, at a minimum, uh, a reprioritization of uh, where we seek growth and, you know, a balancing of what we trade for it um, is, is probably in order. Uh, you know, I read a lot recently about the economic opportunity um, that's inherent in, in, you know, evolving our energy economy uh, to, you know, to meet climate change. So you look at that, it's like, you know, uh, uh, ambition towards economic growth isn't such a bad thing. Um, it's there for the taking. Uh, it just might come in a form that we're not used to. Um, but when you put, you know, economic development on a small level, uh, you know, on a local level above uh, all else, um, at, you know, as you do, for example, you know, as a state like North Carolina might do because it benefits from, you know, property taxes and, you know, local development, even though it knows it's kind of playing Russian roulette with, you know, with homes built uh, on its coastline. Um, you know, that's really a trading of, of one person's interest for another. And, um, you know, I think some reevaluation of, of economic system that supports that is probably um, called for. And you also point towards some reforms, but all these reforms don't necessarily, they have a ripple effect and they don't necessarily work in the way that they would hopefully work. You write that Atlanta has started bolstering its defenses against climate change, but in some cases this has only exacerbated divisions. When the city converted an old west side rock quarry into a reservoir, part of a larger greenbelt to expand parkland, clean the air and protect against drought, the project also fueled rapid upscale growth, driving the poorest black communities further into impoverished suburbs. So might Philadelphia, Chicago, Washington in Boston and other cities with long neglected systems suddenly pressed to expand under increasingly adverse conditions. Do green projects then make areas so desirable the poor are forced out? Does saving poor communities mean ending poor communities, forcing the poor to go elsewhere? It doesn't have to. I mean, I I think that, you know, climate gentrification is the term that I'm hearing a whole lot, which is what that refers to. And, you know, that's a that's um, a phenomenon that's happening now very much so. And it's a risk going forward. And, you know, I think it it all leads to the need to consider, you know, the ripple effects of, uh, you know, all of these actions in a more systemic way. You know, so when I talk to people in Atlanta for that example, um, you know, they ask what might have happened if the city had, you know, taken steps to address the poverty before, um, before they took steps to, you know, to build um, a greenway that led to the gentrification. So, you know, if you if you just take one measure, thinking that that by itself will, you know, will solve all of the environmental problems, then you might have an imbalanced result. If you can, uh, from a policy perspective, begin to look at, you know, poverty and the social needs uh, at the same time, or even first, uh, you might have a very different outcome. 
I've been trying to figure out forever now, as long as I've heard the first the first time I heard the uh, words climate change denialism, why there is such climate change denialism here in the United States and why it is so much, there's so much more denialism here in the States than elsewhere. We've been talking today about how uh, we have to address economic growth if we want to mitigate the worst aspects of climate change, or at least some of the worst aspects of it. Uh, we need to address big agriculture. We need to address the way that our economy works. So to what extent is the reason that we are in any kind of climate change denialism that uh, all of these kinds of reforms are nearly existential threats to the United States of America? Well, I think that, you know, the, the headwind of a lack of political consensus around climate change doesn't help uh, any of these issues. Uh, it's certainly slowed down, you know, the kind of change and planning that you've begun to see, uh, you know, in parts of Europe, for example. Um, uh, you know, so it, it's a, that's a whole, whole additional problem. Uh, but, you know, uh, I think for things to move forward, you know, in a productive way or even to seize on the economic opportunities of, of changing our energy system, for example, uh, we do need to overcome a bit of, uh, you know, the belief system, uh, you know, that this isn't a threat for, for people, um, you know, for, for uh, people on, on the whole. But I think that's part of the change that you're seeing now is that, you know, even people who might not have considered themselves, you know, sort of environmental or activists uh, are beginning to understand how this is affecting their lives. And, uh, you know, and that dealing with those changes doesn't make them, um, you know, more liberal or more conservative. It just makes them um, pragmatic. I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with senior environmental reporter Abram Lusgarten. He is the author of the article, Climate Change Will Force a New American Migration, which is the result of a partnership between ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine with support from the Pulitzer Center. And you can follow Abram on Twitter at A-B-R-A-H-M, and then his last, the first uh, letter of his last name, L. So A-B-R-A-H-M. ML on Twitter. One last question for you. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience might hate your response. You wrote, like I was saying earlier, that amazing uh, Pulitzer Prize finalist reporting in Killing the Colorado back in 2015 with the accompanying 2016 Discovery Channel film Killing the Colorado, which you co-produced. Now you're writing this article here on the uh, climate change will force a new American migration. So how did policymakers react to your writing on killing the Colorado? And how do you expect they will react on your reporting on this potential American migration due to climate change? Yeah, you know, these are two very um, complex and broad uh, topics and problems. Uh, you know, the response to what I wrote about the Colorado River was, uh, on the whole, very positive, uh, eye-opening to all sorts of, of interests, uh, you know, in that issue. Uh, eye-opening because it, it suggested some easy fixes and, uh, you know, and it suggested some, uh, you know, long-term um, broad fixes. And, you uh, you know, I, I think that the response that I'm getting now is, is kind of similar. There's a lot of interest in understanding, um, you know, the the intransigence of the issues, uh, you know, a little bit more deeply uh, and in beginning to understand, you know, what does it mean for urban areas to prepare, for example? Um, what does it mean to try to, uh, you know, lessen the impact on uh, or disproportionate impact on impoverished communities? Um, so, you know, on the on the there's always detractors, but on, on the balance, uh, you know, feedback across the board has been. Um, very engaged and and very positive. 
Well, that's great because I've always been worried that far too often people think if we just inform the public, then they will make the right decisions. All they need is the right information. And so often that doesn't turn out to be the case. So I'm really glad that it seems to be happening in your situation where you are informing people and policymakers are making decisions because you do offer solutions to the problems. That's fantastic because I've always thought that people were a little bit too leaning on hoping that information will turn the people around. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. We were really upset that we couldn't get you on the show when you had Killing the Colorado come out in 2015, and this really is an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thanks for having me and for your interest in the work, and uh, it was a great conversation. All right. Thank you. That was senior environmental reporter Abram Lusgarten. He is the author of the article, Climate Change Will Force a New American Migration. All right. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. Man, what's going on? I'm going to say that again. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, captooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what can I say to get you in this cult today? What can I say to get you in this cult today? The person with our favorite answer wins our new Graham Black This Is Hell trucker's cap, which you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer to this week's question from hell by the end of the show tomorrow. Because right after Jeff Dorch and in the moment of truth, we will be announcing this week's winner. Alex, please share some more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. Might delight you that I didn't get a chance to hang up on uh, him before you said bringing you bong. I didn't. Journalism. Damn no, it. Uh, no, he, uh, I love that one slide. Uh. Uh, how can I get you in this cult today? What can I say to get you in this cult today? Kevin B. says, we have curry chicken salad every day. <laughs> Andy S. says, we have hot singles in your area. Leslie P. says, free kitten and a chocolate bar for new members. Joanna B. says, we provide health care, and at level three, you gain the ability to turn debt into sexy rage and become transcendentally immune to tear gas. Also, our cult is spelled with a K, so you know we cool. Sebastian M. says, if you win, we'll give you stickers or a hat. What can I say to put you in this cult today? What can I say to put you in this cult today? Josh M. says, you have to join one of two cults, and the other cult is full of racist, sexist, transphobic fascists want to rape you, gun you down on the street, cage your children, leave you starving with no medical care, destroy nature, and generally strip away your civil liberties. Or you have to join one of two cults, and the other cult is full of pedophile terrorists who want to steal your money, control what you think and say, teach your children to hate themselves, leave you jobless, and generally take away your civil liberties. What are you going to do? It's a two-cult system. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I I just don't want to be in a cult. It sounds like there's too much work involved. <laughs> David T. says, free glazed donuts. Joshua L. says, we are led by someone without dementia. <laughs> Lisa B. says, free donuts in the conference room. Is there something with cults and donuts that I don't I, know? Yeah, there must be. I don't know. Damn, maybe I'm going to be susceptible to joining a cult. I soon. know that there's a cult here in town that has free meals that are very low in protein. <laughs> That's all I know. Joanne C. says, will there be a goat demon? If so, sign me up. Philip G says, I am woman. Hear me ask my permission. Hear me ask my husband for permission to roar. What can I say to put you in this cult today? Mindy H says, does this cult give us swords and bad bangs? In. Braden S says, quit your job. We're paying your rent now. Uh, Nikki says, can I go without the magic underwear? John H says, there's free cookies and ice cream. I do love magic underwear. Steven S says, all you can eat. Ladio says, no castration required. (laughs) Michael S. says, eternal salvation guaranteed or three times your money back. What can I say to put you in this cult? Just a few more. 
Uh, Jeannie B says, we will fulfill the promise of an all-female SCOTUS. <laughs> Jessica B says, leadership stance on pineapple on pizza will determine my position. Andrew S says, vote blue no matter who. <laughs> and JNH says, make America great again. We want to thank a couple of listeners for joining us as our newest subscribers on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, where we post an exclusive podcast only for subscribers every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time with a new dialogue for me and an interview from our archives that is not currently available online, plus over 150 past Patreon podcasts, so it's like a whole nother year of This Is Hell. We want to thank our newest Patreon patrons for joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to G, and thanks to Jeffrey C. Alex, who is on tomorrow's show, beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time, here at thisishell.com. Suzanne Dollywall and Lindsay Bakagal will be on to talk about their red pepper piece, All Eyes on Wet'suwet'en. It's a fantastic article about the indigenous campaign against the uh, what's it called? The Coastal Gas Link liquid na- Liquefied Natural Gas Pipeline. It is really a great article, and everybody should be reading it. Why this is not getting the global attention it deserves. I know it's not getting any attention here in the United States because our media is patently racist, but it really should be getting a lot more attention. Also, in a moment of truth, Jeff Peddles, a fancy new psychosis. Oh, so you got the new teased that's awesome and uh one other thing we want to thank uh we also want to thank mckeezy thank you mckeezy for going to this is hell.com clicking on support and showing your appreciation for completely listener supported this is hell if you support this is hell by going to the cell.com and click on support we will definitely thank you on air just as we thank our patreon patrons every week I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz producing Alex Jerry. Thanks to Abram and Alex for being on today's show. With my most sincere apologies, yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind I'm also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.